0: Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4 we're continuing on in our series in 1st and 2nd Samuel and today we come to one of the more interesting sections of the book. So far we've been focused on Samuel, his birth, his growth, his calling as a prophet. But here in chapter 4, Samuel fades into the background for a bit. In fact, we won't won't hear about Samuel again until chapter 7. And interestingly, what takes Samuel's place is the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant, right? It was that gold-covered wooden box about four feet long by two feet wide. It was kept in the Holy of Holies. We probably don't think about the Ark of the Covenant very often, but for the next three chapters, that's what will get our attention. And it begins here in chapter 4. So, let's read the text together. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author beginning in verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the, when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, Were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled. Every man to his house, and there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who, came, who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured." As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray now and ask that God would bless our hearing of His Word. Father, thank You for Your holy, inspired, inerrant Word that reveals to us who You are, and that confronts us, Father, with the reality of who we are. Sinners, Father, idolaters. People in need of Your grace to reveal truth to us that we might see, Father, believe and live. We pray, God, that You would give us ears to hear now from 1 Samuel chapter 4, what it is that You have spoken concerning Yourself and concerning our condition before You as Your people. I pray that You would keep me from error, Father. I pray that You would make Your Word very plain and very clear. I pray that Your people would be built up in the truth and that we would not be like those who hear the Word and then go away forgetting what we have heard, but that we would hear it, Father, and believe it and obey to the glory of Your name, Father, and for the good of Jesus' church. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, the moment happened nearly 10 years ago, but I can still see it very clearly in my mind. I was in Peru on a mission trip as part of a team that was scouting locations for future work. And one evening, when we had come back from the mountains uh, where we were doing our scouting, we stopped by the cathedral that is situated on the town square The cathedral is a massive, beautiful structure. It was built by the Jesuits in the 16th century. It's huge, and it's home to several important religious items. And one such item, the most important item in this cathedral, is known as the Lord of the Earthquakes. It's a wooden crucifix depicting Jesus at His death. Each year, on the Monday of Holy Week, this crucifix is led out of the cathedral and paraded around the town. You see this area in Peru is prone to earthquakes and the people believe the crucifix protects their city from harm. On the evening we visited, there was a woman kneeling in front of the crucifix, almost face down on the floor. From her clothes and her physical appearance, it was very clear that she was quite poor. But she had made her way from wherever she lived down to this cathedral in order to pray. Why not just pray at home? Well, because the people believe there is power available to them in the presence of that crucifix that they cannot get anywhere else. And so they'll spend the little money that they have to travel to the cathedral to pray in front of the Lord of the earthquakes. Now, does the one true God have the power to protect His people and even entire cities from disaster? Yes. And should we pray to Him asking for His power to work on our behalf. Yes, absolutely. But, kneeling before a supposedly powerful crucifix, is that what it looks like to trust the Almighty God? No, not in the least. I don't say that to disparage that woman that I saw that evening. She was simply doing what she had been taught, and our hearts should break for the countless millions of people like her right now who are being misled and deceived by the same sort of falsehood. But the sad reality is that while we, have, we may have been in a church building that evening, that moment had nothing to do with Christianity. There may even have been some loose association with the Lord Jesus, but there was no connection with His Gospel. What I witnessed in that cathedral was rooted in idolatry, not truth. Friends, I tell you that story to point out that centuries have passed, but what you'll find today is not all that different from what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Change out the praying woman for Israel's army and the crucifix for the ark, and you have essentially the same scenario. Mysticism masquerading as an actual relationship with God. It seems there is a natural tendency in the human heart to twist the things of God until He becomes our servant. One theologian has called it rabbit foot theology. We don't want God. We want a genie who will do our bidding. And sadly, you see it all the time. If you don't believe me, then think for a moment how often you hear professing Christians talk about receiving signs from God as the revelation of His will. We won't read the Bible and listen to what it says, but we'll believe that the amount of change the clerk gives us at the store is the sign of God's will See it all the time. So, from 1 Samuel 4 to the woman in Peru and on down to us, things haven't changed all that much. There is a natural tendency in the human heart to follow mysticism that masquerades as an actual relationship with God. And that means this chapter has much to say to us as God's people. Friends, we must not let the cultural differences of 1 Samuel 4, distract us from how important this text is for the church today. There are two things the church is always in need of. One, we need our view of God to be continually corrected so that it is more in line with who He actually is. And two, we need our worship to be continually reformed under His Word so that God's authority is seen among us to a greater degree. The church is always in need of those reforms to see God rightly and to worship Him rightly. And in God's grace, this passage speaks to us precisely on these points. So we may not think about the Ark of the Covenant very often, but make no mistake, brothers and sisters, this chapter is speaking to us. May God give us ears to hear what He says. As you look now at the chapter with me, you'll notice the text divides neatly into two halves. The first half is verses 1 to 11, where there are two battles resulting in two defeats. And then the second half is verses 12 to 22, where there are two reports resulting in two deaths. It's a pretty neat structure. And verse 3 is really the key to the interpretation. Notice what Israel's leaders say following their first defeat. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Now, Israel's leaders get a lot wrong in this chapter. In fact, they get everything wrong except this. This is right. As disastrous as things appear, these are the Lord's actions among them. This is the Lord's doing. He is the one directing how these events unfold. And that, friends, gives us the bearings for our study. There's two halves to the chapter, so we're going to have two points. And in each point, we're focused on what God is doing in the life of His people. What is His purpose for this disaster in Israel? What is his purpose? So we begin in verses 1 to 11 where we see the first purpose. God uses defeat to defend his name. God uses defeat to defend his name. As the chapter opens, we find Israel fighting against the Philistines. You should get used to that because it's going to happen all the time in 1 Samuel for a while until David comes along and starts. Achieving victory. They're always fighting the Philistines. And the reason was land. The Philistines lived on the southwest coast of Canaan, and they wanted to expand their kingdom northward and eastward, which brought them straight into conflict with Israel. So it's a frequent occurrence. And this particular encounter between the Philistines and Israel is a train wreck, at least for Israel. It starts off bad, and then it only gets worse. Israel is defeated not once, but twice. And they lose not only many men, but also the Ark of the Covenant. It's a train wreck. And we might be tempted to chalk this up to the Philistines' superior military strategy, but that would be a mistake. This defeat is more about Israel's relationship to God than it is the Philistines' skill in battle. In fact, if you follow the progression Of the scene, you can clearly see Israel's deteriorating spiritual condition. It's on full display. Follow the progression with me. First of all, Israel exchanges faith for superstition. Notice verses 3 and 4. After the first defeat, the elders of the nation recognize something has gone wrong. They know the Lord has brought defeat upon them. So their response is, let's bring up the ark. Let's get the ark. Let's bring it here. On one level, there is some rationale behind their decision. Do you remember the battle of Jericho? That great victory for God's people? They marched around the city until God brought the walls down in triumph. The ark was in that procession. The ark was in that march. So there's some precedent for thinking the ark might help them. It was a sign of God's presence and God's power. But did you catch their language in verse 3? Notice it again. Let us bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it, that it may come among us and save us. Friends, that's not a statement of faith. That's a statement of superstition. Israel is not trusting in God here. They are operating on some mystical belief that the ark itself is a talisman, a good luck charm that can conjure up power on command. So, this is not faith. This is not trusting God. Not in the least. This is superstition, masquerading as faith. But the progression continues. Israel's leaders then exchange repentance for ritual. Repentance for ritual. In the Old Testament, any time Israel was defeated in battle, it was a sign that something was wrong with the nation. Think about that battle of Jericho again. What happened right after the battle of Jericho? They were defeated at the city of Ai. Why? Because one of the soldiers, Achan, had kept some of the treasure for himself. So God used the defeat at Ai to expose their sin. That same dynamic is at work here. When they lose the first battle, the elders should have known something is off. We need to repent. But even if they missed that connection, there was another indication, a clearer indication of their need for repentance. Look at verse 4 and notice who comes with the ark. Hophni and Phinehas. Now by this point in the book, you don't have to have a degree in literary analysis to know that this is not good. This is not good. Hopney and Phinehas have no heart for God and everyone knows it. So if they're present at the battle, then God is not. That's the connection. It doesn't matter that Israel brings up the ark. What's needed here is repentance and those wicked priests should be the sign of it. But that's not what happens. The people believe that by simply having the ark present, they'll win the battle. You see, they turn the whole thing into this heartless ritual. They're trying to recreate Israel's past battles, but without relationship to the God who won those battles. They want God's power, but not His standards. They want God's victory, but without the submission. So they foolishly exchange repentance for ritual. There's one more level. And this one's the worst of all. Israel exchanges reverence for self-interest. Faith for superstition. Repentance for ritual. And now reverence for self-interest. Look what happens in verse 5. When the ark arrives, the army lets out a great war cry. They're confident. They're confident in their impending victory. But notice what's missing. Reverence. Reverence. Understand, friends, these men should be trembling before the Ark of the Covenant. Most of them probably have never seen it before. The Ark was housed in the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God. To even touch the Ark accidentally was to die. But here they're treating the Ark like a tool, like a weapon that they can wield. It's just another sword in the scabbard. There's no awe. There's no wonder. There's no fear before the presence of God. At this moment, all they care about is getting results. All they care about is what works. And surprisingly, Israel's faulty view of the ark is confirmed by an unlikely source, the Philistines. Notice how they respond in verse 7. The Philistines were afraid, for they said a God has come into their camp. Now, on the one hand, the Philistines are right to be afraid. They've heard of God's power, how He struck down the Egyptians. But on the other hand, they are wrong to assume that the ark itself is that mighty God. You see, this is the worst indictment of Israel at this point. Their behavior looks familiar to the Philistines because this is how the Philistines treated their idols. Like tools to be used. Like weapons to be wielded. For their own benefit. This isn't worship. This is irreverent self-interest. This is pragmatism in ancient Israel. So when you put all of that together. That whole progression. It's no surprise what happens in verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11 are almost just... An afterthought, a necessity. When you see how bad it is, notice again the total defeat. It is an all-out rout. Even more men are killed than before. The army flees. Every man for himself is what they're calling. They're they're running away. And the unthinkable happens. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord falls into the hands of the pagan, idol-worshiping Philistines. Now, at this point in the chapter, you're meant to be confronted with a very challenging question. And it, it is it is a hard question. Why does God do this? Why would the Lord allow this to happen? Remember, friends, at the heart of Israel's life is the truth that there is only one God, the Lord who created the heavens and the earth. And that means this defeat is a challenge to Israel's entire worldview. Their whole life is built around confessing that there's no one like God, that all other gods are nothing in comparison to Him. But after this rout, wouldn't the Philistines assume that it's the Lord who is nothing? Wouldn't the Philistines conclude that God is just another so called deity that can't even protect His own people? Yes, that's probably what they conclude. And the Lord will deal with them soon enough. But for now, the Lord's concern is for the glory of His name among His own people. Among His own people. Friends, that's the takeaway from the battle scene. The Lord mercifully crushes Israel in battle so that they would see their current view of God is a delusion This is how much He loves them. He will crush them until they see what He's really like. It is a powerful, striking, sobering conclusion. God will endure what appears to be shame in order to correct His people's view of who He is. He is so committed to His name and to His people that He will not leave them in their delusion, even if it means a crushing defeat. But let's press it a little further. Let's just press it a little further. What specifically is the Lord showing Israel about Himself? What what is it about His glory that He is highlighting in the defeat? What specifically? Well, I think there's two things in particular. There's way more than two, but we're going to focus on two. Number one, God is asserting His absolute freedom. God is asserting His absolute freedom. Brothers and sisters, this is the primary doctrine on display in these verses. The doctrine of God's absolute freedom. We must understand that central to God's being is the reality that He cannot be controlled or manipulated by anything outside of Himself. He can never be placed in anyone's debt so that He is obligated to act. This is the problem with superstition. It treats God like a tool for our gain. But God will not be twisted until He becomes our servant. In all things, God is absolutely free and He is bound by nothing outside of Himself. No one can make Him do anything. He is free. Brothers and sisters, I wonder at times if we too easily forget this truth. Sure, it may not be as flagrant as Israel here in chapter 4, but do we, even for short seasons, slip into a similar mindset? Maybe it's how we view our devotional pursuits and practices that longer time in prayer somehow obligates God to respond. Or that a season of fasting necessitates His action. Or maybe it's how we perceive our offerings and our our gifts that they are some kind of deposit that requires a return from God. Friends, when those ways of thinking creep in, you can be sure we have slipped into the same error as Israel. We have forgotten the truth that God is absolutely free and bound by nothing. You see, our understanding of relationship with God should always be marked by two realities. Grace and gratitude. Grace and gratitude. The Lord does respond to us when we pray. And He is pleased when we pursue Him. But those things owe entirely to His grace. He is never obligated to respond. He responds because He is gracious. Because we are His children covered by the blood of Christ and adopted into His family. And in turn, that means what we offer to Him should always be done with gratitude. Gratitude. We pray not to twist God's arm, but because we are grateful to approach His throne of grace with confidence. We give not to get something in return, but as an expression of thankful praise for what He has first given to us. Friends, this is why this particular doctrine is so important for the Christian life. God's freedom drives us back to what should be at the heart of our relationship with Him. His grace that gives rise to our gratitude. God is never in our debt, brothers and sisters. He is never in our debt. He is free without any constraint. Let that truth deepen your awe at His grace and then strengthen your gratitude in response. He is absolutely free. There's one other aspect of God's glory that we should note from the defeat. It's God's absolute faithfulness. It's his absolute faithfulness. Now, you might think, how is anything about this chapter faithful? (laughs) Israel loses in battle. How is their faithfulness here? Look what happens in their defeat. Verse 11. Hophni and Phinehas die, just as the Lord said they would. So even in defeat, God is faithful to his word. And remember why the Lord brought this judgment on Hophni and Phinehas. So that he might raise up another leader, a faithful leader, in their place. In that sense, brothers and sisters, we shouldn't miss how even in the defeat, there is an evidence of God's grace. Yes, his judgment is being poured out, but in the end, it is for the good of his people. I hope that's something we take away not just from this chapter, but from this entire sermon series. God's judgment is never an end in itself. It's never an end in itself. It's always for the sake of His name and for the good of His people. He is faithful to His Word even when it is hard, and that is always for our good. He is absolutely free and He is absolutely faithful. Well, friends, I hope we see that Israel's defeat, while disastrous on some level, is also purposeful. It's very purposeful. The Lord is working here. In the midst of their loss, He is working and He is using the defeat to exalt His name among His people. Let's look now at the second half of the chapter. Verses 12-22, to where we see the Lord's second purpose. God uses tragedy to reveal His worth. God uses tragedy to reveal His worth. After verse 11, the fate of the ark is put on hold until the next chapter. And for now, the focus is on how the news of the battle is received back in Shiloh. And as you might expect, it goes badly. Twice the outcome of the battle is reported and both times there is a tragic response. But strikingly, it's not the loss of life that prompts the tragedy. It's the news about the ark. Notice how it plays out in the text. It begins with Eli. He's old, blind, and anxiously sitting by the road waiting for a report. But since Eli is blind, he can't see the messenger arrive from the front. So there's all of this uh, tension and expectation from Verses 12 down till finally verse 17. The messenger gets to Eli and he gives him the report. Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. And so this proves too much for the old feeble man. But notice in verse 18 the specific reason for his demise. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God... Eli fell over backwards from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. So it wasn't the rout of Israel's army that crushed Eli. It wasn't even the death of his own sons. It was the loss of the ark. That was the final blow, so to speak, that brought him to his end. So for all of his failings, Eli's death does manage to teach us that the real tragedy has occurred in relationship to God. But in in case the lesson isn't clear enough, it's basically repeated with probably more pain uh, with Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas. Pick it up in verse 19. The woman is pregnant with a son. And as with Eli, the news of the ark is too much for her to bear. Notice the order of the news. Verse 19. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, her labor pains came upon her. Very simply, what's listed first? The loss of the ark. Again, that's what brought about her tragedy. What's more, notice the woman's last words recorded in verse 22. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So with her dying breath, what is she mourning? Not the loss of her wicked husband, but the loss of the ark. Now the question we have to answer is, What's the point of this clear emphasis on the ark? I mean, it's almost awkwardly repeated over and over three times in the last four verses. There is such a heavy emphasis on the ark. Why? Well, Eli's daughter-in-law actually tells us. As she's dying in childbirth, she names her son. And through that name, she teaches us how to interpret what has happened to Israel. You see, she plays the similar role to Hannah, but in the opposite way. Hannah told us how to interpret God's grace in the gift of Eli. Now Phineas' wife tells us how to interpret God's judgment in the loss of the ark. Look at verse 21. Notice the name she gives to her son. Ichabod. There's some debate over what that name means exactly. It could mean no glory or where is the glory. But either way, her lesson to us is well taken. The true tragedy is not Israel's defeat. It's the loss of God's presence. The loss of His glory dwelling among His people. Now, I want us to be clear at this point. You have to think very carefully in order to see the significance here. The glory had departed from Israel, but not because the ark had been captured. That's not what... That's not what is being said here. Remember, God is free and His glory is not bound to an object. The ark's capture didn't cause the glory to depart. The ark's capture revealed that the glory had already departed. Do you see the difference? It's not that God went up to battle lost and then was taken away from His people. Far from it. The sovereign Lord has no rivals, and he has no category for what it means to be defeated. In the mind of God, there's not even a little section that says losing. He doesn't know what that's like. No, the tragedy for Israel was that they went up to battle without the Lord. His presence had been gone for a long time, his glory had already departed from their midst. Friends, that's the divine purpose. Behind this entire tragedy. That's what God is doing through all of this. His people have treated Him lightly. They have taken Him for granted. They have disregarded Him. So God shakes their world to its core in order to show them that He is their treasure. He is their inheritance. More than the land, more than military victory, more than even the trappings of the tabernacle. What should be most valuable to Israel is that God dwells among them. And that His glory has been revealed to them in His Word. He uses the tragedy to show them His worth. Brothers and sisters, if this was true for Old Covenant Israel, how much more so is it true for us? The Lord has given us many blessings as His new covenant people. But what we should treasure above all is the gift of His presence among us. When God's Word is taught and honored in the church, it is a sign that His glory has been revealed among us in the Scriptures and in the person of Christ. Every time somebody stands up here and reads the Bible and says, this is the Word of the Lord, your heart should quake with gratitude that God is here. When there's unity among the body, it is a sign that His Spirit is at work in our midst, knitting our hearts together in love, taking the many and making us one. So when you get those emails about needs for meals or needs for childcare or a need that needs to be met in someone's life, your heart should quake with gratitude that God is present among His people. When there is confession and brokenness over sin, it is a sign that repentance has not been exchanged for ritual, praise God. And that God's promise of sanctification is being worked out in our midst. Brothers and sisters, when He shows you your sin, it's not because He's mad at you, it's because He loves you. And He is dwelling in your midst. These are our deepest reasons for joy as a church. The Lord may never give us a large building or a sizable congregation. He may never give us enough resources that we can bring other men on staff to serve as pastors. He may never do those things. He's not obligated to. But, as He continues to give us these evidences of His presence, then we are blessed beyond measure. We are rich. I pray we would not take this for granted, friends. We should not take this for granted. Sadly, there are many churches across our state and country over which you could write the label Ichabod. The glory has departed. They may have buildings, but they're empty edifices. They don't mean anything. God's Word is not cherished. His people are not striving for unity. And His character is not honored. There's no glory there. I say this not to pat us on the back as though we're somehow better than those places. I say this to spur us on in the continued pursuit of God's presence among us. Don't take it for granted. As long as Midtown Baptist Church exists, and may it exist long after we're gone. As long as it exists, may it never be said that the glory has departed. May it always be true that God's Word is honored here. That we strive for unity in love and that holiness is cultivated in the fear of the Lord. Pray for these things. And what's more, brothers and sisters, may we also recognize that the responsibility for such a ministry lies with each of us. You and me. Together. So, Israel's tragedy in this chapter is unspeakably great. And I pray that God would use it to increase our gratitude for the blessing of His presence. Truly, friends, there is no greater treasure than to know that God dwells among us. Well, as we close, I want to bring your attention to one final observation from the chapter, and it has to do with the Gospel. I thought for a while as to how to make this a third point but I couldn't think of anything, so I'm just going to tell you what it is. This is the best way to end our time, I think. Here in 1 Samuel 4, the glory has departed because of Israel's sin, which should remind us just how serious sin is. It disconnects us from the greatest of all treasures, from the Lord God Himself. So there is this need for a remedy Something that would enable God's glory to be seen and known among His people once more. Something that would reconcile sinners to God so that we might dwell in His presence forever. Friends, the rest of the Old Testament is taken up with this problem. We see it over and over again. How can God's glory be among such a sinful people? Then we come to the New Testament. The Gospel of John in particular. And in John 1.14, we hear this incredible good news. Keep the horrible cry of Ichabod in your mind as I read this verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his what? His glory. His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Marvel at this grace, brothers and sisters. As we leave 1 Samuel 4, don't miss this reminder of the good news. Though our sin disconnected us from the glory of God's presence, God Himself took the initiative and left His own glorious presence to come and save a sinful people. God the Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God. Do you see all the Bible connections coming together? God the Son, who is the radiance of the glory of God, took on human flesh, made like us in every way without sin, and this glorious Son died to do away with our sin. It's an incredible thought. The glory of God became man so that we might be reconciled to the glorious God. It's an incredible thought. To the praise of His glorious grace and what grace it is that the Almighty God would reveal Himself to us not in judgment, but in glory. The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So 1 Samuel 4 is hard. There is disaster here and there is tragedy that is heartbreaking. But in the midst of all of that, there is also this gospel light that brings us once more to marvel at the face of our Savior. May we see Him, brothers and sisters, and may we rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what a kind and gracious God You are to reveal Yourself to us, to Your people, to take the initiative, God, to send Your Son who laid aside His glory to be made like us in every way, yet without sin, and then to die in our place for our sin. Truly, Father, You are gracious. And You did all of this, God, because You wanted to. No one twisted Your arm. You are free. You are sovereign. You are exalted above the heavens. And we bow before You, Father, not demanding that You hear our prayers, but trusting that You do because You are gracious. Help us, God, to worship You in light of who You are, help our worship to always be reformed under Your Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you all please stand? Oh, how good